Good morning. Good morning. Pastor David told me to introduce myself. I, uh, I told him, I told him when I came in this morning that I feel like a guest speaker this time around, partly because I thought church started at 1130. Uh, and if you're laughing, you know the church starts at 11 o'clock. Um, and I think it's been that long since I've been uh, over here at Bronzeville. I think church was, was 11 o'clock, uh, maybe not, uh, but it's been a while. So I, uh, I am one of the main cooks and bottle washers over at Logan Square. Uh, work mostly over there. And so there are one or two times people will ask my wife, where's, where's Michael? Where's Pastor Michael? And she's always kind of caught off guard by that because... She has to find a way to say, well, he's at church at Logan Square. That's, you know, where he's supposed to be. And they don't let me come over here very often, uh, David and Peter. So uh, I'm glad to be here with you this morning again. It's been a while. Um, half of y'all, I don't even know. So that's actually a good thing. Um, that means that God is, uh, in the language of Acts, adding to the church. Um, and that's what we want to see. Um, and there are a few folks that I don't mind not seeing anymore around here, right? Uh, I'm just kidding. Like, I miss you, Deacon. I miss you, you know? I miss you, and uh, I, miss, I miss you and other folks. So it's good to be here this morning with you. Are you glad to be in church today? Yeah, good, good. Those, those of you who didn't say, we will pray for you over the next few minutes. Uh, uh, welcome again to the visitors, those of you who are here maybe for the first or second time. Uh, you're noticeable. Obviously, the hospitality can come and say, here's that card, because we're a church plant. And uh, in a situation like ours, a new church, not quite a year old, we get to know uh, who comes around regularly. So uh, I got my own visitor's card this morning when I came in. Uh, just kidding. Um, this morning, we are looking at Matthew chapter 20, and we've been in the Gospel of Matthew for the last, when they, when they have a seat, yeah, um, she's a visitor, uh, uh, my sister standing up, we come from a tradition where we stand up to read scripture, um, and when I get to it, you can stand up, you can stand up, just to feel at home, um, but we've been in Matthew chapter, tw- we've been in Matthew as a gospel uh, for, for, for a few months, And today we're going to find ourselves in Matthew chapter 20. And I've been told that over the last three weeks, you've been looking at the language of Matthew, the language of the kingdom of God, this church and power and money and love and relationships. And so we're coming out of Matthew 19 and we're still looking at uh, the language of the kingdom of God, the parables of of the kingdom. And we've looked at a lot of parables because the last time I was here, we were, I was talking about a parable, and I think that was Matthew 13. And there have been multiple parables since that time. And today is going to be no different. We're going to look at a parable. And for those of you who haven't necessarily been taking this journey with us, the parable is, is a, a, a method of teaching that Jesus uses. He uses it quite a bit. And the word parable means to use um, a story or a literary device to say something other than what the listener expects. So the story itself, the, the language of the parable, where you, where you expect something other than what is said. The parable, this story, this teaching device, Jesus uses to tell his listeners, his disciples, his followers, something about God's Kingdom. Say the word kingdom. Kingdom. Now the kingdom, kingdom of heaven in Matthew, or the kingdom of God in the other gospels, uh, the, the kingdom is that language that talks about God's realm. The kingdom is the place where God controls. It is the space that God manages, the space that God superintends. It's the stuff that God controls. So when we see parables about the kingdom of God, We're seeing stories that are unexpected, stories that are surprising, that talk about the space that God controls. 
So the parables of God's kingdom, when Jesus preaches and proclaims the kingdom, the parables about the kingdom, when the disciples, the first disciples and and disciples today try to live into this kingdom of God, the parables about the kingdom are ways for us to proclaim and to claim that this is God's, that this is God's, that this is God's. And in your life, in my life, in the church of God, we are living into this truth that all that we see belongs to God. So the gospel claims that your life and my life and this church and this world, as Pastor David said a few moments ago, does not go untouched because it all belongs to God. Now... Uh, the, the language of Matthew 20, when it comes to the language about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of heaven being like, is language that, that, that focuses on uh, working, unemployment, grace, compassion, kindness. And, and, and I hope you see, because the parable preaches itself in many ways, and that's what a parable is. It doesn't require a lot of explanation because the parable is concrete. You can hear it and understand it. You can listen to it and grasp it. You can read it and get it in your soul so that when you hear the parable read, when you read it in a moment, would you pay attention to the obvious, even if the obvious is surprising? Let's look at Matthew chapter 20. Uh, I'm going to ask you all to read with me in a minute, but warm yourselves up just in case you need some notice. So right around halfway through, I'm going to say you read and then I'll back out because I got a lot more talking. Than I imagine you will. OK, Matthew chapter 20, uh, verses one through 19. For the kingdom of heaven is like the landowner. If you'd like to stand, Renee, you can. How about just make her feel at home and, you know, everybody stand. Let's do something different. We can stretch. We can, no. Um, um, when, when I grew up, we used to tell people when we read the scripture that you stand for a whole lot less. So stand for the reading of God. So, um, Matthew chapter 20. For the kingdom of heaven is like the landowner who went out early one morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay the normal daily wage and sent them out to work. At nine o'clock in the morning, he was passing through the marketplace and saw some people standing around doing nothing. So he hired them, telling them he would pay them whatever was right at the end of the day. So they went to work in the vineyard. At noon and again at three o'clock, he did the same thing. At five o'clock in the afternoon, he was in town again and saw some more people standing around. He asked them, why haven't you been working today? They replied, because no one hired us. The landowner told them, then go out and join the others in my vineyard. That evening, get ready, I'm going to have you read in a moment. He told the foreman to call the workers in and pay them, beginning with the last workers first. Read the rest. When those hired
they will sentence him to die. They will hand over to the Romans to be mocked, flogged with a whip, and crucified. But on the third day, he will be This is God's word for us. Thanks be to God. You may have your seats again. Dawn told me this morning uh, uh, to shorten the message because it's Super Bowl Sunday. And, uh, and either, either she was making a comment about my usual length of sermonizing, or she was saying that I didn't know it was Super Bowl Sunday. Um, I told her that I had prepared what I believe is an appropriate sermon for the day. I also told her that I knew that it was a basketball game. And if you don't know me, that is a joke. Uh, It's a joke. Super Bowl is like the World Cup. It's soccer. No. Uh, This morning, uh, over the next hour or two, what I'd like to talk about is, is, is the kingdom of God. And what I want to do is just pull three thoughts about the kingdom um, this morning. And th- to have you sort of hold in your mind this story that really doesn't need a lot of explanation. And, and three sort of pieces to help you think about this story and to help us embody the story and live the story. The, the first thing, the first piece is that the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, is where justice is defined as generous. So, so, so the justice is generosity. So that the language of what it means to be right is, is, is not uh, stingy, but it is generous. It takes a little bit of us walking back to come to this text because we're years and years away from it, away from this culture. But I think we all understand this inherent idea of fairness when it comes to work and when it comes to pay. We're used to working, particularly in this country, uh, for wages. We're used to being promised a wage. You go to work if you work and you do it on the assumption that your employer will be Fair with you. Maybe that starts in high school. Maybe that starts when you get your first job. You know, people don't really have paper routes anymore. But, you know, some of you all are old enough to have had. That is your first job, lemonade stands. It sort of starts somewhere in our childhood usually. We start working and we understand that, you know, you work and you get paid. And you never really expect people who work less than you to be paid the same amount of money as you if you're doing the same job. Because there's this just assumption of fairness that comes when you're in the work world. If you work, you are paid. But there is a difference in the kingdom of God between fairness and justice. Fairness concerns itself with everybody getting equality, everybody getting the same amount, people getting what they deserve, if you will. So so we're used to that. We're taught to be fair. But but I want to suggest to you, church, that that being uh, fair is a poor attribute for the kingdom of God and God's kingdom. That there is something deeper, that there is something more penetrating that the church is called to, that you in your life, that me in my life is called to. And that is not fairness, that is something called justice. And justice, when you define it by a biblical definition, is language about being generous. When scripture speaks of fairness, if you looked in your Bible program or if you you, you, you survey uh, scripture, when scripture talks about fairness, the overwhelming definition of fair in the scripture is actually a comment about how something looks. Something is fair when it is pretty. Something is fair when it is beautiful. Something is fair when it's physically attractive. There are only one or two instances in scripture where being fair is talked about as balance or as honest. 
And when scripture talks mostly about honesty and integrity and balance, it uses this weighted word called just. In the kingdom of heaven, fairness is a lean, skinny, frail, hungry word. Words uh, like generous and just and kind are heavier, stronger, fuller, more present words. And I think those are the words that Jesus in this story is pushing us to say. There is a basic generosity, a basic liberalness under just. This parable in Matthew has a problem in it. And the problem is not uh, that the landowner goes out to the marketplace and employs people. The problem is not that he agrees to pay uh, the normal wage, which is the language of the scripture. The denarius is the daily wage for the first group of people. It's not even that he goes back into the marketplace four more times. Nine o'clock, noon, three o'clock, five o'clock. That's not the problem, the landowner doing this. The problem is that he doesn't pay Fairly. His pay is not fair. His pay is generous. He says in verse 15, is it against the law for me to do what I want with my money? Should you be jealous because I am kind to others? That word kind. To whom is the kingdom of heaven kind? The kingdom of heaven is kind to everyone. This landowner is not stingy. This landowner is not unkind with the worker who has been toiling all day. He is kind to that worker. He promises the worker, you come work for me at the top of the morning and I will pay you. Work for me, I will pay you the daily wage. He is kind to that person. But he is no less kind to the person who comes at the end of the day, an hour before the harvest is finished, an hour before all of the crop is brought in, an hour before everybody goes home for the evening. He is kind from the person who has been with him the longest to the person who has been with him the least. And when he is kind to both those types of people, he catches everybody. The kingdom of God is kind to everyone. But there is this other searching word. There is this other matter that the kingdom of God is not just kind. The kingdom of God is just. And if justice is defined as generosity, the question is, well, for whom or to whom is the kingdom of God just? And the answer there is similar to the first, but the answer is that the kingdom of God is just for last people. The kingdom of God is just for last people. Everybody is eventually given justice. And these two words of kindness and justice, these two truths and attributes in the kingdom capture everybody. And it's rough, if you think about it long enough, to know that God is going to be kind to everybody. It's rough when you know that God is going to be kind to the person who has worked less than you. It's not fair. It's rough. It's hard when you know that God is going to be more merciful or just as merciful to the person who deserves less mercy. It's unfair. We're brought up to be fair 
We're brought up to look out for our own. Your mothers and fathers, your aunties and uncles tell you to look out for your siblings. That's family. Look out for your family. You are taught to look out for the people who you're close to, who you're closest to, who you're related to. But in the kingdom of God, that inherent failure or that inherent fairness that we are taught falls short to the generosity of Jesus in the story, a landowner coming and saying, I don't want you followers to train yourself to be fair. I want you to train yourself to be generous. I don't expect you, if you follow me, to be a person of fairness. No, no, no. Because the kingdom of God is not fair. I expect you to be a person of justice. I don't expect you to be fair because I'm not fair. I expect you to be kind. The last And I think there's an opportunity for us as a church to, to become as acquainted with mercy and grace and justice as we are, if not more, with fairness. If we are following after Matthew and seeking first the kingdom of God, this is the people that we already are. This is the person that you already are. If you are a follower of Jesus, there's no trick to it. There's no special recipe, no formula. There are no ingredients that you have to go shopping for at Trader Joe's or Jewels or Dominic's or the corner store. If you are a follower of Jesus, you already have the Holy Spirit inside of you. That, that, that itching, sometimes annoying presence of God that tells you that you already are a citizen of the kingdom that is not just fair. You are a citizen of the kingdom that is just. And that means you give yourself for last people like Jesus gives himself for last people. That's why being fair doesn't really fit. I mean, it, it gives you that sort of time-limited satisfaction because you told that person what you really thought and then you walked away knowing that what you thought was just not enough. In a real way, church, we can't be this We cannot accomplish this mark of the kingdom where we're just, where we're generous on our own. But we have to so concentrate on Jesus and Jesus' kindness, Jesus and his mercy and grace, that we become convicted by guilty. I'm glad to say I am not a felon. Wouldn't be able to vote. But I but I imagine that when a judge says to a person, in other words, you are guilty, no matter what that person thinks, the judge who is powerful enough to change your identity says what you And for the church that is kingdom-minded, that follows a Jesus who, who advances God's control, who claims and proclaims all things as God's, the church is a convicted people. Justice is defined as justice. Number two. The kingdom is where we can't receive grace and dictate grace at the same time. This story has uh, this, this, uh, this landowner, this steward, and um, the problem doesn't come in the text until it's pay time, actually. I mean, everybody's at the field, everybody's working, everybody's doing what they think they're supposed to be doing. They're working toward an end called pay time, end of the day. 
And at, 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 at pay time, the order of pay is reversed. The workers who show up last were to be paid last. That's the customary practice. It's not until pay time that the story, the parable, turns into a controversy. This is the surprising because to Jesus' listeners, to Jesus' first audience, they were expecting, well, we know how this works because we've done this. This is, our, this is our craft. This is our work. When you show up first, you get paid first, then you go home. There is no controversy if the first or the oldest employees, the longest serving employees get paid first because they don't know what the landowner will do with the people who've been there for one hour, for three hours, or five hours. They've gone home. So there's no need for them to get upset, for them to confront the landowner, but that doesn't happen in the store. The workers who toiled all day, had they been paid according to custom, wouldn't have known that the folks who just got hired got the same pay. A confrontation would have been avoided if the landowner and the steward had just paid the people the way everybody else was paid. This parable would almost be boring if the landowner paid the longest serving employee in the beginning of pay time, giving them the first pay and the first act of pay. The first phrase. That's not what happens. Jesus' listeners, the readers of Matthew's gospel, are surprised. I think they are surprised and maybe a bit disheartened. Remember that Matthew's audience, that Matthew's primary audience, did not just consist of Gentile Christians, who in this text are the last people. Gentile Christians, who were not the first Christians. Matthew's audience consisted of people who considered themselves to be in the category first, and that is the Jewish Christian. That is not, not even the Jewish Christian, but the Pharisaic uh, part of Judaism. So, so they're listening to this text, and they're saying, wait a minute, we're used to being first. The landowner in the text then is accused of injustice. He is accused of two accounting errors. He is accused, one, of not knowing the difference between working for 12 hours and working for one hour. And he is accused, secondly, not being able to account for the scorching heat of midday and the cool breeze of the afternoon. This landowner, is not generous. This landowner is incompetent to these workers. This landowner, for the workers who have been there the longest, are questioning his aptitude. They weren't polite. The landowner addresses them and he says to them that the last comes first. Last, a Gentile. I said, non-Jews in this first audience. They are the people who come into the church late. They are the people, not late like I was this morning, but they are the people who come into the church after first. We are told that in God's kingdom, this is how people should expect to be treated. When you're last, Everywhere else, in the place and space where God controls, in the kingdom of heaven, you are first. I want you to make connections here because, because you live this in your life. Because you go to work and I go to work and we go play and, and we go do what we do. And our lives have to reflect this kingdom that we're part of, that last people by God's grace, our first people. Can you relate to this? Can, can, can you relate to the, to the worker's position who is saying to the landowner, wait a minute, this, this isn't right. I'm supposed to be first. I think you can. I know it sounds kind of harsh, but there are people that you don't want to be a part of this kingdom. 
not necessarily church. I mean, we're a new church. We're a church plant. So we take everybody. You know, we're, we're undiscriminating. Uh, that's how most of y'all got here because we, we want everybody. No, I'm, I'm kidding. Again, uh, we do take everybody and we're glad for everybody to come. Uh, that's, what, that's what new churches do. Uh, we'll kick you out a couple of years later after you start making trouble. Um, Here's the real question. Who do you put in last place in your life? I think, I, think that's the, I think that's the question you open your bulletin and sit right on your lap. I think the question is, who are you used to putting in last place? Is it the drunk? Is it the conceited, arrogant person? That's the one for me, like the conceited, arrogant person who thinks they know everything, who you can't teach anything to, who, you know, when they show up, you're blessed by their presence. Like for me, that person just doesn't get in the kingdom because you just, you can't make it. That's for me, sorry, confession. Uh, But who is it for you? Who is it for you? Is it the person who has perpetrated violence against the elders of our society? Is it the person who has been charged to care for children, but who abuses that privilege and honor? Is it the person who uses power for their own personal gain and never for the good and the gain of the people and the constituency that they serve? Who is the last person who you would say in your own way, you can't get grace? Because that's the person, that's the situation that when you come to Matthew 20, you get to say, well, if I've gotten grace, I can't get grace and at the same time restrain grace. I can't receive God's goodness, God's generosity, and at the same time arrest God's hand from giving goodness and generosity. That's what Matthew 20. The last come first. People who have wronged us. The people who really don't deserve salvation as if some of us do. The people who not only aren't thinking about Christ and Christ's kingdom, but people who are actively and consistently opposing Christ and Christ's kingdom. Those are the people who are left. This parable is unsettling. This parable drops this question of my own receipt of grace and everybody else at the vineyard. This parable pushes me and you, friend, to ask the question, can I watch God give grace to the worst? See, see, that, that, that's, the, that's the weight of this. It's not just, well, you know, you get paid the same as I get paid. The weight of this passage is that you and I get to watch God give out unobligated grace to people who've done nothing to deserve. And if there's anything worse than that, you and I get to watch God give out unobligated favor and grace to people who have done less than we have. That's even worse. The truth is, church, and I I hope you hear, watching God give grace and mercy to somebody else is hard. If it's easy, it's not really great. If it's easy for you to watch God give the worst, even in your own subjective judgment of whatever the worst is, it's hard, it's difficult, and it's supposed to. That's life in the kingdom of God. 
That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. That, that, that your worst is the same as her worst and you both get God's grace. If you receive God's grace, you can't dictate God's grace. If you get God's unmerited favor, you can't make God give that favor out in any particular way. You can't, you can't surrender to God and at, the t- and at the same time order God. We can't require God to act and at the same time surrender to the God kingdom is not fair. It is not fair. It is generous. It is gracious. And grace means giving everybody who doesn't deserve it. Same. Last number three. The kingdom is where we worship in the shadow of the We're being sort of understandable here, practical enough. Say the word cross. You were asleep, wake up. Say the word cross. You notice that the first workers in this text um, only asked the landowner about the people who showed up last. Did you notice that? They didn't ask about the people who showed up at 9 and 12 and 3. They just asked about people who showed up at five. No, 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 I can't stay. I got, I got quick, so my wife told me to make it short. So I, I just want to drop that. Because you usually, usually, uh, and, and remember, this is about working folk. This isn't really, you know, abstract. This is about people with a job saying to people who have been waiting on a job, how dare you not show up early? How dare you not get your act together enough to be in a situation that I'm in? How, what were you doing? I mean, you know, scholars kind of debate because we, we don't know if the people who were there throughout the day at the marketplace who hadn't been hired at the first run, we don't know if, we don't know if they were idle. We don't know if they were lazy. Most scholars say they weren't. This is where they went to look for work. We don't know. And the, the ambiguity is really helpful because in the kingdom of God, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. But the the, the earliest workers only zero in on the folks who are the most humiliated. I've been waiting all day long for this. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is like the landowner going and getting people who have been waiting all day long for a job, for an invitation to work, and still wondering at 2.30, at 3 o'clock, at 4 o'clock, is a job coming my way? At the end of our passage, Jesus introduces or reintroduces his future. He tells his disciples Uh, for the fourth time in Matthew's uh, account that he is going to be crucified. And I think uh, that Matthew does a masterful job of laying this parable on the one hand and then sort of connecting in a way that really feels almost forced Jesus' crucifixion and death. He's writing this newsletter and he's editing it in a way uh, that these stories, these parables are attached to the expression of God's kingdom and the engine of God's kingdom. So he's saying that the the, the kingdom of God is like this landowner and him hiring everybody that he can hire and paying them and the kingdom of God in order to do that is about the death, the crucifixion, the resurrection of Jesus. The life and death of Jesus is the only way for the kingdom of heaven to make sense. Did you hear what I said? 
the life and death of Jesus, the life, death, resurrection of Jesus, is the only way for the kingdom of God to make sense. And you can put make sense in quotes because here you have a situation where uh, we aren't told in the story whether these folks, these workers, are waiting around and they're looking and they're doing that. We aren't told, so we don't really know. And in Jesus' kingdom, it doesn't matter. What matters is this active landowner who is God-like, this active steward paying people to work no matter how long. And inside the kingdom, inside the kingdom is a king. The only way it makes sense is inside the kingdom, there is a king who serves that kingdom by living, by dying, by giving his life and expecting followers to live, to die, to give their lives. Now, we, we, we can't imitate Jesus every time Jesus does something in the gospel. So don't get that twisted. But I think there are calls in the gospels where we can very much imitate what the Savior does. You hear what I'm saying? So we can't go to Calvary. We can't get nailed to the cross. We can't sleep in the tomb and think we're going to get out of the grave three days later. Somebody kills you. You're just dead. Okay, You're not going to wake up until the, the, the you know, second coming, sometime after that, depending on if you're millennialist or post-millennialist. It gets really complicated. So really, don't try to die and get up late. We can't do what Jesus does most of the time. And yet there are these hooks in Scripture where in order to follow Jesus is to follow Jesus. So that if you are an employer, it is for you to act like this landowner in the situation in the best way that you can. It is to be as just and as generous and as merciful and as gracious as you can be given what God has given you. And in this passage, we are presented with a Savior who serves and expects his followers to serve. This parable. And the message is disorienting. Three more minutes. The disorienting passage, the disorienting message of this parable is you are equal. Think about those words. You are equal. To those with a long employment history and those who are latecomers, and who show up right before the jobs are done being handed out. You are equal. Depending on how you're looking at that message, how you're listening to it, whether you're the unemployed or the, the gainfully employed, you are equal can be really, really tough to swallow. You are equal, college student, who has an internship, maybe two, and you're looking at May and you're saying, I don't know, how am I going to use my degree in psychology? To the 30-year veteran who's competing for a limited number of jobs, the message of the gospel is... God saying, I will be just toward you. Did you show up at six? Did you show up at nine? Did you show up at noon? I think the message of the kingdom, the message we, 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 we close our ears after hearing is God saying, as a benevolent, gracious, compassionate, kind, liberal landowner, I will be judged toward you. And, and Matthew grounds that in, in the, the, the death coming in the hurry of Jesus Christ. Let's look at these last three verses, 17 and 18. As Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside privately and told them what was going to happen. Listen, he said, we're going up to Jerusalem where the Son of Man will be betrayed to the leading priests and the teachers of religious law. Kelly, you all can come on. 
They will sentence him to die. Then they will hand him over to the Romans to be mocked, flogged with a whip, and crucified. But on the third day, he will be raised from the dead. This is the third time in Matthew that, that, that Matthew is sort of, actually uh, the, the fourth time that Jesus mentioned his death. He's done it in Matthew 12, 16, and 17. And you've kind of read those passages by now. He talks about Jonah being in the belly of the fish for three days. Jesus will be in the belly of the grave earth for three days. Jesus says it's necessary for him to go to suffer in Jerusalem. Jesus says that he must be betrayed, he must be killed, but that he will rise from the dead. And here again, he reminds his followers that his death is coming. Jesus' death as the last part of this parable feels unrelated to the parable. It feels tacked on to me. When you're reading the language of the story that stands on its own, and then Matthew talks about Jesus telling his disciples for the fourth time, remember that the way this is going to happen is I am going to die, and I am going to rise again. Can I tell you that as you think about it, and I don't pretend to believe that that when we, when we preach, we can make all the connections for you. So you have to make them. You have to do that. We have to do this in community. We have to figure this out. We have to listen to the text over and over again. And it's not just what homework Pastor David did or Bishop Michelle, who I don't see today. You know, um, It's not just the work we do to prepare for 30, 45, 50 minutes. It's the work that we do with our lives. And can I tell you that as you live into this text, as you figure out what this means for you, the only way you're going to be able to do this is by anchoring yourself in the truth that Jesus was crucified. And the only way that I can do this is by remembering that, that Jesus rose from the dead. And the only way as a church we can be a generous church is by anchoring ourselves that Jesus defeated death, that Jesus who brings this kingdom, who proclaims this kingdom, who claims me, power to do it. Bow your heads, everybody. Let's pray. Oh, God, I want to thank you that you are Lord of all, that you indeed are the God of us, that you control us, that our times are in your hands, that Our lives are in your hands that the beginnings, the endings, the middles, all of them of our lives are in your hands. That that in some way that we don't quite understand, you control our time. Would you convince us of that as we hear of this landowner who is generous? Would you convince us of that as we hear the language, not just in scripture, but in our own days and times of people who are struggling to find work, struggling to keep the work they have, struggling to find more work, struggling to do more, struggling to do more. Would you convince us that our times, as the psalm says, are in I pray this morning, Lord, for my brothers and sisters. For my brothers and sisters who who are working jobs that they don't want to work. I pray for my brothers and sisters this morning who are looking for jobs, whether they want the job or not. I pray this morning, God, for, for men and women who have the ability to hire but are fearful and afraid. I pray for brothers and sisters in this church and around your church around the world who have been given resources to act and do but aren't quite sure how you would protect them. Would you remind us that our times are in your That the kingdom of God means that you control this to our jobs, our unemployment, our questions, our fears, but these are in your hands. Would you make us a generous church? Would you make us generous people? Would you help us to 
work and to worship in the shadow of a cross that says, you are equal, I will be just to you. Pray these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Is his grace enough for you this morning? Thank you, worship team. Pastor Michael, thank you. Um, when, I, when, I ha- when I hear a good sermon, for me, it's like eating a, a good, healthy meal, right? Not like Thanksgiving where I just want to fall asleep. But I want to go out. I want to, I want to respond, right? Um, I want to preach right now. I'm not going to. But let me tell you two things that come to mind, church, when I hear Pastor Michael preach. Two things. First is fairness a tiring way to live because someone else has always done more someone also someone is always better someone always is is more righteous stronger right fairness is a tiring way to live here's the second thing that comes to mind i imagine it's pastor michael's preaching all these workers at the end of the day coming together and, and they're asking each other when did you get here five o'clock three o'clock noon and this is what grace does for us. This is what the gospel does for us. We can all raise our hands and say, I didn't get here until five o'clock. And I have no shame in that. Because all of us showed up at five o'clock. None of us showed up at eight o'clock in the morning. Amen. Every single one of us showed up at five o'clock. And the gospel allows us to say, five o'clock, no shame. Because the master is good. Amen. Now hear these words of benediction. Lord, send us out under your grace, under your mercy, as people whose lives have been transformed by nothing other than the very death and resurrection of the Son of God. Help us to live lives that move so far beyond fairness to justice, to kindness, to mercy, and to grace. May our lives be marked by these things. In the beautiful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Hey, the Super Bowl doesn't start for a while, so don't rush off. Hang around. Help us clean up. We'll see you next week.